You know, we've been talking in the past several weeks about uh, the full life, the new life, uh, what the church does, um, and, and, and really in, in all of those messages is really encompassed a number of things, but one of which is uh, we do the Lord's will, true? And uh, if we are to do the Lord's will, and, and uh, if we are to believe what Jesus said, that... Uh, that we would do the things he did, he did, and we would do greater things, then that would require that we be uh, supplied with some significant measure of power to do those greater things. Would you agree? Yes. And if we are to minister uh, to any effective degree in, in, in any way in people's lives so that it's lasting, if we are to be truly... Uh, conduits of the love and the grace and the mercy of God in, in other people's lives. It requires uh, that we be people who are living uh, uniquely. And uh, so I want to talk to you tonight about uh, living supernaturally. We typically live in this natural world naturally. But we are described by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 8 as more than conquerors. And the Greek word that he uses for that phrase, more than conquerors, is hupernikomen. How many are familiar with that word? Hupernikomen. And it literally means, you could literally translate it, uh, super Nikes. We are super Nike missiles, if you will. Not, not, not the shoes, the missiles. <laughs> We are to live our life on an entirely different plane than other people around us who don't know Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you again tonight about this idea of living supernaturally, not living naturally. Now, if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, this is a familiar passage, but I want us to look at it. And we're going to look at Peter. Now, this is Peter prior to Pentecost, and then we're going to look over the book of Acts and see Peter after Pentecost. And we're going to see a marked change in his life, a marked difference in his life. And the question I want to leave you with, or I want to ask you to ponder, as we look at these passages, actually two questions. Who are you most like now? Are you most like Peter before Pentecost? Or are you most like Peter after Pentecost? Or here's the secondary question. Who would you most like to be like? Peter before Pentecost or Peter after Pentecost? Okay, so write that, jog that little down, thing down on your notes and, and look with me, beginning at verse 31 in Matthew chapter 26. Now this is at the Lord's table. Jesus institutes that last meal, that last Passover meal, which will become what we call the Lord's table. And it's there, <clears throat> there that he tells Peter a very astonishing thing. Verse 31 says, Then Jesus told him, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he quotes Zechariah. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Don't we have the best intentions? We say, I'll serve, I'll go, I'll, 
Lord, I'll pray. I'll be there. We all have these best intentions. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Many times, in the midst of our very, very best intentions, it's not but just the next day that we forget. Or that our, our desire wanes. Our interest wanes. Our commitment wanes. <clears throat> but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Can you picture that? Isn't that powerful? Would you be impressed? If you, were, if you were a fly on the wall and you're hearing Peter's vehement testimony, would you not be impressed? Would you say, boy, this guy is committed. And boy, all the rest of them said the same. They're following his lead. His, this guy is the guy. He's got the goods. Would you be impressed? Okay. Now look over at verse 69. Same chapter. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, he goes to the time of prayer and so forth. And, and then he's betrayed and arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. Verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out. Now, this is interesting. I want you to see a, a real subtle contrast here. While Jesus is on trial inside, Peter's on trial outside. Okay? Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus in Galilee, she said. And he said, yes, I was, and I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> oh, we wish, huh? But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and, and said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He, died it, he denied it again with an oath this time. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there uh, went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your accent gives you away. Galileans spoke with a certain Galilean flavor in their, in their, in their voice. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Best intentions. Vehemently. I'll die first. And it's just a, sh a short few hours later, and he's doing the exact opposite of what he said he wouldn't do. Denies Jesus. Now turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 2. That's Peter before Pentecost. And I want you to see the marked difference in his life after Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Now remember, Jesus had told all of his disciples uh, to wait for him. He was resurrected from the dead. He says, go and uh, be in the upper room, wait for me for 50 days till Pentecost, and uh, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't quite know what to expect, but they were obedient. And they were all scared. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now notice, next verse, verse 4, all of them were what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's this huge commotion going on now in Jerusalem. They're, out, they're going outside. They're, they're speaking in all these, these tongues, these languages. None of them had, had learned as a native language. And they're, what are they doing? They're preaching the good news of God. And it's Pentecost, and there are literally, Jerusalem is literally filled with thousands upon thousands of Jews from all over the Roman Empire who had come to celebrate Passover and stayed for Pentecost 50 days later. And Luke records that, that, that Jews from every district of the Roman Empire were hearing the preaching of God in their own tongues, in their own languages. A great miracle was happening. Now I want you to notice that what happens is some people begin to object. Some people say, oh, no, no, these guys are drunk. And then Peter uses that as a cue. Peter steps up. And he preaches his very first sermon. Now remember, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands out in front of thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem. Unlike the Peter we saw from earlier, who, confronted by just a few people, would deny Jesus. Now, he's preaching Jesus, and he's preaching powerfully. And you read through chapter 2, you come to the end of his sermon. Verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he is out there. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. Be baptized. This is, this, by the way, this is the three-step program. I have a better program than what's offered in the world. I have the three-step program. Okay? This is the three-step program. What's the first step? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read further on, it's, it's just right after there, in chapter 3, that you see Peter healing a crippled beggar. They're going up to the temple to pray. They have no money. The guy's begging. And so Peter looks at the guy, full of the Holy Spirit, says, I don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus, be healed. And nothing happens. The guy just still, still laying there. What happens? She gets up and walks. Jesus said, you do these things and greater things will you do. You go, to, you go further on into this chapter, chapter 3. You see that, that he's speaking powerfully to people about Jesus. He says, by, verse 16, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can see. You go over to chapter 4. He's preaching before the Sanhedrin. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and he speaks powerfully to the Sanhedrin. He's before the Supreme Court. 
This guy who 50 days earlier wimped out. Now he's, now he's teaching and preaching before the Supreme Court in Israel. Chapter 5. He confronts Ananias and Sapphira. Tells them they've lied to God. They've lied to the Holy Spirit. And on and on and on it goes. You, you continue to read. You see, the point I want to make is that here there's a marked difference in this man's life in a matter of just a few days. And what's the difference? It's the difference is he's living supernaturally now, not naturally. He's living by the power of the Holy Spirit. It can be done. That's God's design for us. Sometimes we wonder, we look at people's lives, Christians, we wonder why most Christians never seem to get on fire for the Lord. They never seem to get on fire for the things of God. Look around and, and, and see Christians and, and they're just kind of there, kind of existing. And you wonder, what, what are, you, are you excited about God? Are you excited about the things of God? And the temptation to think sometimes maybe they're not Christians. I'm not sure that we can say that they're not Christians. I mean, we see them. They tend regularly. They serve. They're in ministry. They work with kids. They uh, do all sorts of things in the church. Uh, they tithe. But they never seem to get it. There's something missing in their life. Now, as a pastor, I see this. And you may not see it like I do. Uh, people's faith seems genuine. They certainly seem to love the Lord. But it seems like something is clearly missing from their life. And the temptation, again, is to think, well, maybe they're not saved. No, I think they probably could be saved. But I think there's something missing that, uh, one, they need to be taught about, or two, they need to uh, do something about. And it's not that and, when, and, and you see other Christians who are different. Other Christians who are truly on fire for the Lord. They're excited about God. There's a vibrancy to their faith. They're different. It doesn't mean that they're, they're more talented than the others. It doesn't mean that they're more intelligent than the others. It simply means that their lives give evidence of a real zest, of a real enthusiasm for the things of God. I believe that passion is important in a Christian's life. I believe that we should be passionate about God. I believe we should be passionate about the things of God. I don't think that we can just take a laissez-faire attitude about God. I don't think that we can afford to take a ho-hum attitude about God. Passion. Passion motivates people's actions. When you're passionate about something, you get moving. You get involved. You participate. Now, what's the difference? Why do some Christians have this vibrant faith and the others don't? I think the key to the Christian life, quite simply, is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of just being born again. Now, we're going to talk about that next time. We're going to take a little hiatus next week because I'm going to be at the men's retreat. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you more about the Holy Spirit what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, what it means to be moving in the power of the Spirit, and so forth. But we want to just kind of an introduction to that. <clears throat> Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul 
tells us, he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And when he says be filled with the Spirit, it's an ongoing present tense. The idea is keep being filled. It's just like you have, the, if I can use this analogy, it's a lousy analogy, but it's the only one I got. It's just like you've got this spiritual tank. And just like your gas tank in your car runs down with time and effort and so forth, uh, your spiritual tank runs down, if you will. Now, the analogy breaks down, but it's a, it's a picture. Keep being filled. Keep topping off the tank, if you will. Keep going back. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. People say, oh, I'm all burned out. My, my sense of things is it's not so much burned out. I mean, that's, a, that's something we picked up from our culture. It's not burnout. It's what? It's an empty spiritual tank. It's an empty spiritual tank. So I, I'm convinced that if we are people who are serious about and passionate about God, if we are continuing to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we won't suffer burnout. We will, in fact, be living at a higher level. We'll be living supernaturally in a natural world. Markedly different than anything we've ever done. And, and also, our lives will be a, a significant uh, testimony, I think, to other people. The tendency for many Christians, I think, is to just focus on surface behavior. But surface behavior doesn't satisfy deep yearnings for God. It doesn't satisfy a sense, of, a desire for purpose. It doesn't satisfy uh, that, that yearning for something to be passionate about spiritually. If you just focus on doing stuff. You just, if, you're, if you're a mini-church shepherd, well, I'll just be a mini-church shepherd. But why are you a mini-church shepherd? Because I'm passionate for God, and I'm passionate for the things of God. And I want to see people grow, and I want God to use me in the lives of these people, and I want to encourage them, I want to pray with them, I want to bless them. Why are you a children's church worker? Because I'm passionate about what God's doing in the lives of kids. Why are you in the parking ministry? Because I'm passionate that our people get parked and they don't get a ticket. Or towed away. And we can go on and on and on, couldn't we? I'm passionate about God. I'm passionate about the things of God. Our natural tendency is boring Christianity. If you ask the average person out there in the street, is Christianity exciting or boring? What response do you think you'll get back in terms of the majority? Boring. Boring. Why would people say that? Because they look at who? Us. They look at the church rather unenthusiastic about God. We're all occupied and distracted by so much other stuff we're not passionate about God, and I'm going to submit to you, we're not passionate about God because we're not full of His Spirit. And that tank is full, rather, with the spirit of the age. He says, don't get drunk on wine. Uh, you could just as easily say, don't get drunk on the spirit of this age. Don't get your life full of the stuff of this world because you crowd out the Holy Spirit. I'm just convinced that... that Christianity to the world looks absolutely irrelevant and boring because the world looks at the church 
and sees the church, like I said to you a couple weeks ago, they say, what, but what does it do? It's like an old antique on the shelf. It's an interesting piece, but what does it do? And every so often, you run into a passionate Christian. You run into it, and I'm not talking about someone who's just running off at the mouth and turning people off. I'm talking about someone who is actually living the life and being used of God in a mighty way to touch people's lives in a way that nobody has ever done before. Every so often, you run, run across one of those people. And they, take, they, they, you, you, they get your attention. You go, my. And you just got to watch him. You, you're fascinated by him. They're a statistical anomaly these days in the church. Thoreau. Remember Thoreau? Godless, atheist, right? Naturalist. He said, any semi-astute observer. Semi-astute. You don't even have to be astute observer. Just be a semi-astute observer. Any semi-astute observer would see that most Christians, quote, lead lives of quiet mediocrity, unquote. What an indictment. Lead lives of quiet mediocrity. Man, we ought to be gathering in the midweek in those mini churches on fire for what God's been doing in our lives and through our lives. We ought to be gathering on the weekends just ecstatic for what God has been doing and how he's been working in us and through us all week. We ought to have people clamoring to give God sightings and testimonies about what God has been doing. But we don't see that. For some, Christianity is merely a duty. A good and necessary duty, but nonetheless a duty. Rather than something to get excited about. Most of us can remember back to when we first became Christians. And man, we were excited. We were excited. We were telling everybody. We were just so excited. We discovered something. This is absolutely the most, the most exciting thing. My little friend, Casey Herrera down here. She came to the Lord at the, at the play, right? She's been in my, she just finished my class. She comes almost every service. I can't, I, I, she reminds me of me when I first became saved. She's here all the time. See, she's, look at her, look at her. You can, tell him, Casey, tell him, girl. I can't stop thinking about Jesus and God, and, and every day I'm like, yeah, I'm like, Bible study, I gotta read, I gotta, find everybody over, and I'm Amen, go lay hands, go lay hands, Casey, after service, I'm going to lay hands. Let some of that rub off on all the rest of us, amen? You see, excitement, passion. You know, because of this, because of our, lack of the Holy Spirit, many of us are, as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, we are still worldly. If you look at your life, you say, you know, I can't, I can't disagree. I'm still worldly. I still have a, a, too much of a desire for the world and the things of the world and the, and the philosophies of the world. I'm too easily influenced. I'm too easily intimidated. If the truth be known, I'm more like Peter before Pentecost than I am like Peter after Pentecost, if the truth be known. 
And we give in, as Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we give in to the desires of the sinful nature far too often because we're still worldly. Worldly Christians, worldly Christians, Christians who are giving in to the sinful nature, who are giving in to the sinful nature. Well, I just can't quit smoking. I just can't seem to give it up. I just can't seem to stop masturbating. I just can't seem to stop this, that, or the other thing. I just keep giving in. I just can't stop eating. I mean, we, we go a whole list, can't we, of things. I just can't stop lying. <laughs> can't stop lusting. I, I, I give in too easily to the sinful nature. I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. But by my life, I'm evidencing and testifying, though I may love the Lord, I may be a Christian, I have no power. I am a Peter before Pentecost, in effect. Am I making sense? Worldly Christians have a hold of, hold of God with one hand and a hold of the world with the other. If they ever let go of the world in the first place. We've got one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. That's the most miserable person on the face of the earth. They know the world won't satisfy, but they're not courageous enough to devote themselves fully to Christ. And they know that only Christ satisfies, so they're stuck. What a tragedy. They haven't fully surrendered to God. They haven't fully surrendered to God. And as a result, they miss out on the very, very best that God has to offer You've heard my illustration probably about, um, about swimming. Before you can swim, you have to learn how to float. I mean, if you don't know how to float, you've got to learn how to float. If you, if you never learn how to float, you never learn how to swim. You won't be water safe. So you have to somehow come to a place where you trust in the buoyancy principle of water, that water will hold you up. You can relax. You surrender to the buoyancy principle of water. Now you can swim. But if you never do, you just you get in that water, you sink like a rock every single time. Sink like a rock. Same thing as walking in the Spirit. Same thing as being filled with the Spirit. You've got to surrender your life fully to God, fully to His Spirit, before you can now be moved by the Spirit. Otherwise, you're like a rock, immovable, sink to the bottom. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, these are amongst my favorite verses in the Bible. I can teach on these verses for years and never exhaust them. I love these verses. But they're so apropos for this, this subject. He says, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's what? Mercy. mercy. He's been merciful to us to offer our what? Body. Did he say part of your body, part of your life? No, offer your body. That's an expression. It's a metonym. And it means, uh, by metonymy, you offer something 
to represent everything, okay? Your body is a representation of all you are. As what kind of a living what? Sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is how you worship Him. With everything you are. You give everything. You surrender. Then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, And not conforming any longer to the pattern of this world, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to know what God's will is. And how does he describe God's will? Good, pleasing, and perfect. It's the best. Do you want God's best? Then you've got to surrender. You've got to surrender. You've got to be, be willing to be a living sacrifice. And that's where we get hung up. Ooh, sacrifice. I just know if I really get into this thing, if I jump in with both feet, if I really get serious, I just know God's going to make me be a missionary and I have to eat bugs and all that sort of thing. If that were the case, I'd much rather go be a missionary and eat bugs so that I could know the fullness of His Spirit and live smack in the middle of His will. Remember Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16? Jesus addresses the Laodicean church. What was His problem with the Laodiceans? They were, in effect, half-hearted, weren't they? They were half-hearted. They weren't there... If you were to interview the Laodiceans, if you were to be able to go back into that first century and talk to every member of that Laodicean congregation, I promise you, they would say, oh, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Do you think they'd say, oh, no, we don't believe in Jesus? No, they would be right there. They'd be right there with all of us. Oh, no, I believe, I believe. I'm a Christian. But what does Jesus say to them? Yeah, you're, 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 you're so, I can't think of the word. <laughs> can't handle you in my mouth. I don't, I, yeah. See, half-hearted. Half-hearted. You know who's a great example in the Old Testament, someone who's half-hearted? King Saul. King Saul, if you read his life, started out well, never finished well, is half-hearted. And you contrast him with David, loved God with his whole heart. It can be done. It can be done. I'm, I'm just convinced of it. Beloved, I, think, I, I don't think I know Jesus wants a fire in our hearts. He wants a fire in our souls. He wants us, our lives live such a way so that that fire burns so brightly that a glow can be seen on the outside. The people are warm just being around us. I mean, Peter would walk along and just his shadow would fall on people and they'd get healed. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't know what God's going to do to your life. Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving. Stay on fire, he's saying. Spiritual fervor. That's a Greek word for fire. Stay on fire. Don't let that fire cool down. Don't get distracted. Don't go back into the world. Spiritual fervor. Spiritual zeal. Uh, spiritual gusto. Whatever you want to call it. It comes when we fully 
surrender <coughs> excuse me, to God. Could you give me some water, Bill, please? <clears throat> it comes when we fully surrender to God. What does it mean to fully surrender to God? It means, quite frankly and very simply, that you accept His plan, His program, and His methods. You adopt them as your own. Lord, what is your will? How do you want this done? That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do with this emphasis on prayer and fasting for 40 days. Lord, we want your will. We know that your will is the very best, and we are seeking you with all of our hearts to know what you want for us, for your church. You see, when we accept God's goals, we accept God's methods for our lives. And this encompasses every year, for your marriage, your finances, your personal life, prayer life. God addresses every area, every area of our life. The question is, what area are we holding out on? What area am I protesting or contesting? Passion comes as we choose. Now listen to what I'm saying. Passion comes as we choose to be single-minded in our pursuit of God. There's a verse in the Old Testament that said, the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth. Throughout the, earth. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth, <laughs> looking for someone to strongly support whose heart is completely His. It's like God is going, I know someone's there. I know, I know there's someone out there. I want to support them strongly. I want to be in their life and fill their life. But I want their complete heart. I want their complete heart. God wants somebody who's willing to go anywhere, anytime, be anything that he desires. Surrendered. All summed up in what? Your will, Lord. Your will. I want your will today. I'm going to do your will today, Lord. Anytime, anywhere, God desires. Beloved, the Bible calls that being filled and being led by the Spirit. That's all it is. I'm full of the Holy Spirit and I'm being led by the Holy Spirit question is, are we filled and are we being led by the Holy Spirit? And it's only when the Spirit fills us can His fruit flourish in our life. Galatians chapter 5. Turn there. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Hmm. Who would like to be filled with love as opposed to being filled with hate? Who would like more love in their life? Who would like to be a more loving person? Yeah, okay. Love. Hmm. Joy. Who would like to be a more joyful person or a more depressive person? Well, how many have a vote? How many, more, how many vote for joyful? How many vote for depressive? Okay, we got joyful's got it. How many people want more peace in their life instead of anxiety and fear and frustration? All right. How many people want to be more patient? Now notice, notice, notice. People say, 
Oh, I'm praying for patience. You don't have to pray for patience. Patience comes as part of the fruit of the Spirit. God just causes it to appear in your life. He gives it to you. Your part is to say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Be surrendered to Him. You will be a much more patient person. You'll grow in it. How about another one? Let's see. Uh, oh, here's a good one. Kindness. Who would like to be a kinder, gentler person? Oh, not all of you. Hmm. A good person, faithful person, gentle, self-control. Who'd like more self-control? Yeah, instead of being impulsive all over the map. Love it. If we want God's fruit to flourish in our life, it's only going to come as a result of the fullness of His Spirit. And in order to be filled, and in order to be fruitful, look at verses 24 and 25. This is just another way of saying total surrender. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Does that sound like total surrender? Isn't that what we've been talking about? Total surrender. If I'm going to be filled, then i gotta, I got to just know this. I'm going to nail this thing to the cross. I'm nailing it. I'm going to be brutal with my flesh and my sinful desires and nature. No room. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us, what? Keep in step with the Spirit. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he warns us. He says, either you're going to gratify the sinful nature or we're going to gratify God's Holy Spirit. You can't do both. And our a degree of passion for God comes from that choice. Am I going to satisfy my sinful nature? Am I going to satisfy the Holy Spirit? And my degree of passion comes from that. My choice. And it is my choice. We talked about those apostles in Acts chapter 2. And, and, and thousands of people gathered around them. They were just, they were just amazed... Not only that they were hearing in their own languages, but, but the joy and the exuberance and the enthusiasm that these apostles and these disciples had for God and His kingdom and His message. They were astounded. If you, if you read through the rest of that passage, you'll see that at the end of P Peter's preaching, his very first sermon, 3,000 people received Jesus. First altar call. 3,000 people. That's spirit-filled preaching. It cuts to the heart. It convicts. You go away. You say, oh, God, you talk to me. I can't deny it. Pastor, you've been reading my mail. You know where I live. How'd you know? I don't know anything. God knows. He's given me a message. He's preparing your heart. He wants to make sure you're here to hear what he wants to say to you. And it's his spirit that penetrates you in your heart. You've got to do something with it. And you go to many church and make sure you're committed to doing something about it. Beloved, as we choose to walk 
anywhere that the Spirit leads, we can have the same fervor, we can have the same zeal, we can have the same zest that those early disciples did. They were in that upper room. They obeyed. They said, okay, we're going to go to the upper room. What do you think they did up there for 50 days? Played cards? Read books? Watch TV? What'd they do for 50 days? I imagine they prayed. Jesus has risen the dead. He said, I'm going to go, and I'm, but I'm coming back, and, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come on you in power. They're up there going, oh, oh, God. Okay, counting down 49 days, 48 days. We count down to Christmas. We count down shopping days to Christmas. How pathetic. Think about that. Is that not pathetic? <laughs> this couple this couple came to me some time ago in our church, and <clears throat> and they were struggling with their life. They God had spoken to them. They'd been sitting in the congregation for months, and, and they would keep coming back, and God was still boom, boom, boom. Finally, one day they called me and said, we've got to talk to you. I said, okay, what's about? They said, we, we just, we just got, it's just too much. We've got to come talk to you. So we sat down and we talked. And they, they wanted to grow spiritually in the worst way. God had been speaking to them. Holy Spirit had been convicting their hearts. They wanted to grow. But there was, there was a block. There was a block. They couldn't get past something. They didn't know what it was. So we began to look at their life. We began to review every area of their life as a Christian. And you know what the block was? It was tithing. It was one of the last things I thought about to ask him. And it was almost like a, an afterthought. I said, do you tithe? Well, um, <laughs> we want to, but we can't. And I said, well, how come? Well, we, we're in debt. I said, you both work, right? Yeah. And they really had great jobs. They were making a ton of money. But their spending was outstripping their earnings. And they were way down in debt. And so we talked through, we talked through a strategy for spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. And we had to address this issue of tithing because this was a real spiritual block in their life. They couldn't believe it. So I told him, I said, you pray about this. You say, Lord, you show us if this is a spiritual block. If this is the thing that's really holding us up from growing. So they did. They went away and they began to pray about it. Now, I didn't talk to them about this tithing as some kind of legalistic requirement. I wanted to help them see that it was rather an opportunity for them to lean on God. To trust God. They had to get out there in faith and trust God. Scary thing for them. Well, again, as I said, after much prayer, much conviction, they made a voluntary commitment to tithe. And they began to do this every single week. That decision proved to be the spiritual turning point in their life. 
Now hear me. We're talking about surrendering to God, surrendering everything to God. This is the, this is the one major area they hadn't surrendered. They were afraid to. They had been irresponsible with the, the, the monies that God had already entrusted to them. We had to get them on a budget. I mean, a bare-bones budget. But that decision was the spiritual turning point of their life. They, both of them, began to make tremendous, tremendous progress in their relationship with Jesus. It was marvelous to watch them. They just began to flourish. It was astounding. I could hardly believe it myself. Oh, ye of little faith. And God just kept leading them and leading them and directing them. And new opportunities were opening up to their life. And, and God just put them in some marvelous ministry, which was so much greater than they were in terms of experience and background and training. And yet it was another opportunity to continue to stretch them and to grow them and challenge them. And they were continuing to respond to what God was doing in their life. Just marvelous to watch what was going on. And all the while, they sought God's will more deeply in every area of their life than they ever thought could be possible. Their testimony to me, very simply, was we never, ever thought that our life could be this exhilarating. They just never thought. They'd heard about it, but it wasn't for them. And God had gotten a hold of them. Because they'd surrendered. He'd gotten a hold of them. And he began to just move them along. And open doors. And work in marvelous ways that they could never in and of themselves work. Beloved, once we've had a taste of the joy of the Holy Spirit. Once we've had a taste of the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why would anyone want to go back to a lukewarm, resistant walk with God? And yet people still do. Tragically. As we're filled with the Spirit, we find that we want more of God. But as we want more of God, we begin to realize that to get more of God, He wants more of us. Have you discovered that to be true? It's just a deeper walk of faith. You never arrive until eternity. It's just, it's just a, a bigger step of faith. A more profound step of faith. A more exhilarating step of faith. God, what do you have for me today? Whoo, here we go. Someone once said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to the Holy Spirit. Where is that person? Fully and wholly consecrated to the Holy Spirit. That person who would dare to say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Have you surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Really? Fully? Holy? Do you want to surrender to the Holy Spirit? Fully and holy. Would you dare allow him to fill you and lead you? Would you be willing to risk your life? Are you willing to discover the spiritual joy that comes from really being filled with his spirit? Are you willing to give up your will 
to follow whatever God wants and wherever God wants to lead you? That takes faith. That takes a person willing to exercise faith. Okay, God, let's go. Let's go. You know where he's going to take you. You know what he's going to do with you. But what you do know is it's good, pleasing, and perfect. I know my plans for you, he says to Jeremiah. They're not plans to harm you. They're plans to prosper you and to give you a future. As we follow the Holy Spirit's leading, our passion for God grows, grows even greater. We'll still have some doubts. We'll still have some fears along the way. But we will have, and even in the midst of those doubts and fears, we'll have an utter, absolute, unshakable confidence that He is with me. His rod and His staff, they will comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He is with me. He is with me. He is with me. I won't have to say, God, God, are you here? Oh, please, God, help. Please be with me. No. Lord, you are with me. You are with me. I know it. And we will be able to realize the promise, beloved, the promise of Philippians 4.13, that we can do everything because He strengthens us. So whatever He calls you to do, whatever He calls you to be, it's going to be greater than you are and greater than you can do. And you don't have to say, I can't do that. You say, Christ in me does it. I can do it because He strengthens me. He enables me. He empowers me. What's He calling you to? How's He speaking to your heart? Beloved, with the Holy Spirit living within us, providing the power, we can, we can accomplish all that God has for us. All. God means for us, beloved, He means for us to live supernaturally. He means for us to live supernaturally. He means for us to live supernaturally in this natural world. He means for us to be a light among the Gentiles, among the nations. He means for us to have a testimony that's real and palpable. He means for us to be able to go amongst people and speak to them, speak to them the truth, and touch their lives and make a difference. He means for us to live supernaturally. We're to have power for living. And we're to have power for ministry. He says, I will give you my spirit. And you will have power. Power. To do what he's called you to do. The bottom line, the choice is up to us. What do I want most? Do I want a life of mediocrity? Or do I want to live supernaturally? Do I want to live the same old humdrum, mediocre Christian experience? Or do I want to be a person who lives by faith, trusting God every single moment? Amen? Let's pray.
You know, I, I know, I know in my heart, God already told me that He was going to speak to a number of hearts tonight, and indeed all weekend. That people who are, are, are part of our congregation and, and who love Him and, and come regularly and, and serve in the church and, and tithe and do all those things, but if the truth be known, there's a sense of maybe quiet desperation in your life. I don't know who you are, but God does. And He wants to touch you tonight in a very special way. But you have to be willing to surrender. And so I'm going to pray in just a minute. And if you, if you, want, if you want to make a greater commitment to the Lord, if you want to you want the Holy Spirit to fill you up, if you want to begin to live supernaturally instead of just so naturally, then I'm going to ask you to just come up here and, and uh, join me and I'm, let me pray with you. Go. Let's just go ahead and kneel down here at the uh, platform. I'm going to kneel with you. You want to spread out this more mediocre folk than I thought. We're all the same. Well, I'm going to kneel with you. I'm just like you guys. I want more of his power too. Let's lift our hands to him right now. Lord, you have spoken to our hearts. And we confess freely that we have not surrendered fully to you. There are things we're holding on to and things we're afraid of and unwilling, Lord, to release. Help us, strengthen us, Lord. Give us, give us a, a boost. I pray that our coming forward tonight, Lord, in response to this call, the fact that we're kneeling down with our arms raised, our acknowledging, that you have spoken to us, Lord, would be the beginning of a new new day in our lives. Lord, we repent of those things that have gotten in the way. We hunger for more of you in our life. And Lord, as we repent, as we turn away, each of you picture in your own mind now that thing which has slowed you down the thing you've been afraid of letting go the thing that has occupied your life that's been a, a block for your spiritual growth just let go of that thing right now give it up give it up Lord we repent and we ask you now to fill us with your spirit Fill us with your spirit. Lord, release power into our life. Release your gifts into our life for your glory. We love you tonight. We pray this prayer by faith in Jesus' name. We receive from you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we receive from you right now. Just say that. Holy Spirit, I receive you into my life. I receive whatever you have for me. Your power, your gifts, your strength. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Fall on us, Holy Spirit. Fall on us, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. 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 Praise you. Amen. Turn to somebody who's kneeling down there with you. Give them a hug and say, God bless you. on the platform and we're going to sing together yes yes come on up here we're going to praise the lord together yes just cry up here on the platform